Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. It shouldn't be news to any of our listeners. We actually covered it in part on our last episode. But Elon Musk is buying Twitter for a reported $44 billion. This has gotten the internet up in arms. A lot of conversations about whether this will be good for free speech or bad for free speech, good for open dialogue, bad for open dialogue, good for extremism, bad for extremism on the internet. But most relevant for us, on this show at least, is that when asked why he was buying Twitter, Elon Musk had this to say. Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech uh, where all, so uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, So uh, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. And when Twitter announced that it was being purchased by Elon Musk and he had floated the idea, and I at least didn't think it was going to actually happen, and it, to be clear, still might not actually happen. Uh, I have been hearing some writings and rumblings that he might not be able to get the funding secured for it uh, because it would require selling ter- shares of Tesla that he can't actually actually sh- uh, sell. So he needs to bring in other funders to help with the process. But let's assume for the purposes of this podcast and as much of the internet and Twitterverse is assuming that he is going to buy Twitter. He said in the buyout statement, as part of his statement, that was released by Twitter, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are are debated. He's also said in tweets and interviews that he's a so-called free speech absolutist. Now, on the last episode, we uh, where our guests today, uh, Nadine, Amna, and Matt, appeared, we had a lot of discussion about what it actually means to be a free speech absolutist. So maybe we will cover that in today's episode. But the reason we're having today's episode is for the precise reason we had the last episode with these guests, which is WNYC's On the Media put out an episode called Ghost in the Machine that was fairly critical of Elon Musk and the broader support that he sort of embodies for a freer and open speech space on Twitter. I've got a bunch of clips clipped up from that episode, and we're going to respond to the arguments from that On the Media segment. To do so, as I said, we are joined again by journalist and author Matt Taibbi, former ACLU president and New York Law School professor emerita Nadine Strawson, and Carleton College history professor Amna Khalid. Folks, welcome back onto the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Matt, I want to start with you because you've written about this a little bit. What are you making of this so, you know, reported acquisition. Well, I think the first thing is that it's impossible to know now what uh, a potential purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk, um, what effect that will actually have. A lot of people are purporting to know. 
already that it's going to mean X, Y, or Z. We have no idea. Uh, it could be good for, for speech. It could be bad for speech. Uh, none of that is, is clear. Um, but what is clear uh, is the reaction of uh, people to the this idea of him purchasing Twitter um, has revealed a lot about contemporary attitudes towards uh, speech and content moderation. And a lot, there are a lot of people who are reacting negatively to the idea of, um, you know, a single rich person buying an internet platform uh, with this, with, by saying things like, oh, it's horrible that this one uh, oligarch will have control over the, you know, the speech space when they've uh, basically wanted exactly that for years now. And when other people have pointed out that this had, that the idea of a fully privatized uh, speech landscape has all kinds of dangers for free speech, they've said the opposite. They've said, actually, no, this is a good thing. This, this, this will help us to crack down on disinformation and hate speech and, um, and all sorts of other things. So there's there's a kind of hypocrisy in in the the reaction to the the Musk purchase, which I think is very revealing, um, and you know especially among certain uh, you know figures of the blue check uh, sort of elite on on Twitter. Um, they were all sort of of one voice about this whole thing. Uh, I think the the, re- the reaction by former Labor Secretary Robert Reich that when people say they want freedom, what they're actually asking for is freedom from accountability. Um, I think that was a, that was a pretty common response to, to uh, this, this news and, uh, and says a lot about what, how these people view free speech in general. Has anyone seen the, I think letter that was sent yesterday or the day before to Twitter's advertisers from that uh, coalition of groups asking them essentially to stop supporting Twitter unless it retains its current moderation practices. Matt, you're nodding your head. Yes, Amna, have you no, seen I that? No, I have not. Yeah, Matt, what do you make of that? Well, I thought that was, again, it's fascinating because what's really changed about Twitter, uh, you know, if, if they're really if they're really upset uh, that somebody is going to censor less or, or exercise less content moderation, um you know, what does that really say about what their position towards speech was uh, previously? I thought that was very interesting. Um, and, and again, it says a lot about the this new environment where corporations um, believe that they have a much bigger role in, in policing the speech of even individuals uh, than they ever did before. Nadine, what are your thoughts? You're really the one who kind of had the idea for this episode. What's your hot take? Yes. Well, first of all, I do have to say it is very troubling from the perspective of not only free speech and other individual liberties, but also equality, democracy, human rights, that so much power over such significant platforms for the exchange of information and ideas is wielded by uh, one individual. And that's true. That has been true in the past. It's just a different individual now. It's true for other platforms. As the Supreme Court itself said back in 2017, it used to be subject to debate what areas geographically are the most important for the exchange of information and ideas among we the people as part of our democratic discourse. And the court said now it's no longer debatable. 
it's clear that the most important place, uh, location for the uh, exchange of information and ideas is online in general and in particular social media. And yet they are not, as a matter of law, subject to First Amendment constraints, due process constraints, other constraints that would uh, provide some fair and equal opportunity for people of different perspectives, different identities, etc., to get involved in the debate. Now, mind you, I would strongly oppose government censorship or our controls over these private platforms that would raise uh, controls in terms of their content moderation practices. But what we have to hope for is that those who wield this power will voluntarily choose to do so in a way that respects free speech values, that promotes a free speech culture rather than a cancel culture or, you know, a culture that favors one side of the partisan debate or another on any issue. So in that sense, it was welcome news that Elon Musk said that he was going to adhere to not absolute free speech, anything goes, the familiar caricature of those who want to trash the values of free speech. In fact, he said um, that he would support on Twitter open speech within the bounds of the law. So here we come again, full circle to our last uh, response to on the media. The law, the First Amendment law, if we're talking about the government, does not protect absolutely all speech. And this on the media segment was replete with examples of the supposedly horrible, harmful, dangerous speech that would occur under a an Elon Musk free speech regime that are completely illegal under current law, such as child pornography, bullying, harassment. So it's a, a, a red herring or, a, you know, a, a, a caricatured version of free speech that is being attacked while overlooking the enormous positive exchanges of information and ideas that have occurred on Twitter, including human rights movements, equal justice movements that got off the ground there. Uh, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Oscar So White, and the list goes on. Well, I want to turn now to on the media, but Amna, before we do that, is there anything else you wanted to add to what Matt and Nadine said. I just for your listeners, you know, we haven't consulted before this episode, and it's remarkable to me how much in agreement we are as I listen to the two of you. And um, the only th- uh, that puts a lot of pressure on me because that means <laughs> I've got to play bad cop here, which I'm going to do here momentarily. Fantastic, but I do want to say one thing, which is again going back to what Matt was saying. It's been so revelatory in terms of what the anxieties are that people have. And I think that's what's fascinating is that this caricature that Nadine is talking about is such an easy crutch for people to channel their anxieties. I think they're well aware that these are caricatures of uh, what they think free speech stands for, but they help aid the kind of liberal paternalism that is so rife on the left right now and is strangely converging with the kind of paternalism that we see on the right as well in terms of what they deem is appropriate for people to read about or what they can be educated about in classrooms. So it's a strange moment when we see them making bedfellows and converging on a particular point, and it took Elon Musk for that to become visible. Well, Matt, during his introduction, had talked about Robert Reich's kind of appeal that there's such thing as too much freedom 
uh, and both you and Nadine talked about a caricature of this. So I want to turn to the first clip from on the media because it is nothing if not a caricature of this discussion. This comes from the Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode. Uh, it's a sitcom. I forget what channel it's on, but the conversation is between uh, Michael Loewinger. He's interviewing uh, Natalie Wynn, who runs ContraPoints, which is kind of a popular left-wing um, blog. Let's go to it now. Dennis and Mac decide to turn okay. their bar, Patty's, into the, the most American bar in all of America, a place with absolute freedom, with no gambling restrictions. Anything goes. We're going to have women taking their tops off. You girls went wild. Way to go. And to them, they view it as simply as removing of restraints. We'll have no rules, and then everything that we want to do, we'll get to do. That's the kind of logic. I think that's the kind of logic a lot of people have when they advocate for no restrictions, no rules. But, of course, what ends up happening is that you're not the only one, then, who has no rules. And so the gambling ring gets out of control. People are betting their fingers. Do we have any sharp knives? What? People are playing Russian roulette. The bizarre milk-drinking... The McPoyles. Yeah, they're like an incestuous family, and they also want to cash in on the no-rule space to manifest yes. their own dream of making out with each other. I heard you guys have a uh, anything-goes type situation here. Can we get a couple glasses of milk? What? No! no you it becomes a nightmare, and so they decide that they have to introduce maybe a few rules. Mac, I think we gave people too much freedom. <laughs> yeah, you're right, man. I'll call the cops. No, 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 no. We can't call the cops. That's admitting failure. Dennis, we gave people too much freedom. That's the problem. All they do is exploit it. As you can see there, Dennis and Mac want to start an Anything Goes blog, but they gave people too much freedom, right? And this is kind of the sort of scaremongering we sometimes see in the campus context. Like if you eliminate the free speech zone, the sky will fall. There will be free speech everywhere and we won't be able to control our campus. Nadine, why is this wrong? You're reminding me of uh, a speech opportunity I recently had at Emory Law School, where the there had been so many suppressions of free speech in the name of protecting safety, that a alleged safety that a number of law students at this very prestigious law school decided to form the Emory Law School Free Speech Forum. And the Student Government Association, which had the power to decide whether they had satisfied all the standards, having an advisor and whatever the other content neutral standards were, denied the request to create this group because free speech is so dangerous. Free speech is so divisive. Free speech can lead to a lot of problems. And so that kind of... Uh, Reasoning, I, I put that in quotation marks. It sounds like the post 9 11 Patriot Act reasoning, right? It's fear mongering. It is not reasoning. And one of the um, dangers of this overheated rhetoric, both from the campus example that I gave, which is all too typical, and the OTM clip, is a conflation of real world physical harm that occurs to people's bodies, right? We're talking about people playing Russian roulette, people slicing off their fingers. Somehow that has become equated with encountering an idea that you find challenging 
or that might truly make you uncomfortable in the sense of um, calling into question your most cherished ideas. That kind of discomfort, uh, let me quote one of my heroes, Ruth Simmons, the first African-American woman who was the president of an Ivy League institution. When she was president of Brown in her opening convocation address, she said, education at its best is the antithesis of comfort. So, uh, you know, to equate, wrongly equate physical harm and danger to whatever discomfort comes from challenging unfamiliar ideas is that itself is really, really dangerous to free speech and democracy. If I could, I, I, I also, I agree with everything that, that Nadine said. And, and also, um, I just can't believe how disingenuous that segment is uh, for a for a media show, which um, you know th- these are media professionals who, whenever they broadcast anything, they have to go through a legal review or at least an implied legal review um, every time they go on the air. Uh, any trained journalist knows there's a whole series of restrictions that have always ex- existed. Uh, on the press, um, you know, we have we have to avoid libel, slander, incitement, all kinds of other things. We have to be educated in the different nuances of, of libel, um, the, the things that might trigger a suit, even if they are illegal. Like, you know, th- these these are things that every media professional is aware of. And th- the idea that someone would go on the air and say, "Oh, there's going to be this free for all where all these things." happen is is just delusion it's 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 a lie uh, and they, they know it's a lie uh it's a straw man argument uh, you know i mean i hate to pull out a social media cliche but that's what it is they're they're presenting an image of something that has never existed in uh in reality uh not in the internet and certainly not uh in the news media Matt, I'm going to I'm going to ask you a devil's advocate question. So, should Elon Musk, consistent with his pledge to free honor free speech within the bounds of the law, should he not allow that on the media clip on the ground that it's a lie? To quote you, I uh, you know I don't know. I mean, I I I'm more in favor of the sort of litigation based system of, of all this, which is you know if someone feels harmed by that speech, they can they can uh, make an issue out of it, but. Uh, you know, it's it's cer- it's certainly deceptive. I would say that that uh, that segment, but I'm I'm not in favor of canceling it. I, I do want to come in over here and say that you know what they're doing in that particular episode is very telling of what's happening in our times, which is they're taking a comedy sketch, which I actually think is critiquing these flat notions of free speech and is supposed to kind of make fun of them at satire and comedy about them to point out the absurdity of them. But they're taking them literally and presenting them as the option. I feel like they've missed the entire mark about what the point of (laughs) comedy and satire is. And these are the times we're living in where news sources are presenting that and not critiquing someone on the show for saying, hey, you're being literal minded here. I don't think we can air this. I think you need to have a more sophisticated take on this. That's such a good point. The total inability to grasp humor is is, is so is so central to this whole situation, I think. Well, we've been talking about how Elon said he was going to try and move the platform towards a free speech framework that would be consistent with the law. Now, in the United States, that's the First Amendment, right? But if you go to India, if you go to China, 
uh, I don't even know if Twitter exists in China, but there are a lot more repressive regimes uh, or have a lot more repressive free speech environments than the United States. What does that mean? I think one thing that's very interesting is what has been happening at Facebook with its oversight board, uh, because Facebook's oversight board is adhering to a really important recommendation that was made by David Kay several years ago when he was the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression. And that is that these global tech giants should uh, voluntarily, again, not a matter of compulsion, conform their content moderation decisions, i.e. censorship decisions, uh, to the norms of United Nations treaties that govern freedom of speech. And what's interesting about that is that is the only truly global norm. Virtually every country in the world is a party to it. That's not true of the domestic or national law of any individual country or of regional law. Let me push back there, Nadine, because if I'm remembering kind of the UN's treaties and its statements on free expression, they're fairly broad and they don't have the centuries of jurisprudence backing them up to tell you, you know, what qualifies as incitement, what qualifies as truth that or defamation. So, you know, for example, Russia has a constitution that guarantees free expression for all. North Korea has one of those as well. So just kind of saying, appealing to these values without having the meat on the bones that the historical jurisprudence, at least within the United States has, leaves a lot of room at the joints. Is there's a re- that's a really important point, Nico, and what is not very well known, including among many U.S. First Amendment experts, is that that meat has been started to be added to the bone. And when you look at the length of time, you know, the, the relative youthfulness of these United Nations charters, uh, within the past 10 years, a very robust jurisprudence has grown up. And that that is very speech protective and amazingly overlapping with robust U.S. First Amendment principles. And I actually did the arithmetic and the percentage of time that there's been speech protective jurisprudence is about the same as under the First Amendment, where we didn't start to develop that until the 1960s. Let me give one example, because I think many people do know that the United Nations treaties require countries to outlaw hate speech. But what is not known is that the standards and the concept for doing that are remarkably similar to US law. Basically that uh, there has to be an emergency. The speech has to directly imminently cause certain specific harm, such as intentional incitement to imminent violence. Now, in fairness, it's not a coincidence. Many um, United States free speech experts have played a big role in these UN developments, including David Kay himself. But I think that's an idea that has gained traction through the Facebook Oversight Board, which has struck down a lot of Facebook's takedown uh, uh, decisions on hate speech and other controversial speech, saying that those rule that those blockages. Uh, by Facebook are inconsistent with the United Nations law. So I think this is a very promising development. When I think of United Nations law, I often think of it in the context of what's happening with Russia and Ukraine right now and just how toothless it, it seems to be. 
whatever you think of the United Nations. I just, you know, I, I think kind of the whole infrastructure around the Security Council and what actually results in any sort of action or punitive measure against a country who violates, you know, its proposed uh, treaties or rules. Uh, but maybe that's different in the free speech, civil liberties, civil rights context. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a United Nations experts like you might be, Nadine. Matt? No, just one thing uh, quickly. The, one of the first stories I did about the content moderation movement um, talked about how a lot of these internet platforms um, have run into the problem of how they're legally allowed to operate in countries that have, um, let's just say, less liberal attitudes towards speech. Uh, and this has resulted in some pretty uncomfortable situations where um, for instance, uh, you know, Facebook in Israel, uh, the Israeli government, um, you know, may deem a certain site a security concern. And the next thing you know, you're seeing thousands of sites removed from uh, Facebook. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's one of the things that is sort of a long, long range concern for the United States, which is when you once you start going down the road of content moderation, um, that's beyond the scope uh, of the law. Uh, and somebody starts whispering in the ears of, of executives at a company that, oh, you know, on security grounds, we need to remove this site or that site. Um, that that's a that's a snowball that basically never stops rolling. Uh, they, it, the the tendency with these countries is that they they seem to keep pressing that pressing that more and more. And I, I just think that's a big danger uh, with with this situation is that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember? Gosh, this would have been like 2013 or 2014. But Mark Zuckerberg was in Europe, maybe in Germany, uh, and Angela Merkel during a hot mic moment. This is at the time when the immigration crisis was ongoing. You had a lot of flood. You had a flood of immigrants uh, coming from the Middle East, for example, in North Africa. Angela Merkel was, and, and there was a lot of criticism of how the European countries were handling Angela Merkel on a hot mic, asked Mark Zuckerberg what he was going to do about it. And he said, he's working on it more or less made it sound like he was going to censor some of the criticisms of how these countries had handled the situation. So we mentioned Facebook and its oversight board, um, adding more transparency to the process, perhaps good. But I will say this as someone who manages a communications team and has to like market and advertise you we don't even count facebook organic follows as like members of our social media following anymore because you could just can't reach people organically on facebook and this came after 2016 they really throttled your ability if you're just an individual user or company to get your message out there unless you put money behind it and if you put money behind it facebook can be very very powerful but you know in order to put money behind your message you need to go through this sort of Byzantine approval process. And that might be what Elon Musk is talking about, for example, when he's talking about authenticating humans. I don't know. He's got to find a way to make Facebook profitable or Twitter profitable, excuse me, because it's not currently. Could I add something to Matt's point quickly? Because Matt talked, and it was a really important additional argument in favor of a free speech standard on on Twitter, uh, which is that you then cut off the ability of any government to 
put pressure through the content moderation uh, vehicle. And, and that happens not just with authoritarian governments. It happens in our country. We have politicians that are constantly putting pressure on the social media companies to take down what the politicians consider to be disinformation, what they consider to be hate speech. And guess what? It's the ideas of the other side. Uh, and, and in effect, that means that the government is delegating power that it could not constitutionally exercise under the First Amendment to pressure these companies to take down what would be constitutionally protected speech. It's an end run around the First Amendment. Amna, I've seen you nodding your head a few times. I'm just thinking, you know, and this might become more relevant with the subsequent clips that you're going to play. But to my mind, the issue isn't, you know, what are the ideas that are going to be um, on Twitter now, now that Elon Musk is going to come on, if he comes on? Um, It's more about what are the kind of algorithms that are in play to make particular voices louder than others? And on that issue, I think, you know, the recent piece by Jonathan Haidt in Atlantic, in The Atlantic was quite helpful in sketching out how the kind of algorithmic and the new kind of features that are introduced, like the like button and the retweet button, are in a way generating and changing the kinds of scale uh, of the number of people you can reach. And now you've brought up Facebook and how you can no longer organically reach people. And I think there we might want to see some regulation and some changes, not so much in terms of who can speak and who's going to moderate the content in terms of the ideas. Just quickly to, to, Nadine, to Nadine's point before we move on, uh, it, it's absolutely true that it's already happening in this country. It's not just uh, places that are more authoritarian. You know, Going back to, to 2017, we remember the scene of uh, the CEOs of uh, Twitter, Facebook, Google, all dragged to the hill, uh, being questioned by members of the Senate, uh, the, the senator from Hawaii uh, saying, you know, what, what are what are your strategies for pre- preventing the foment of discord on your platform? Um, and so even as far back as then, you know, there were there was this implied threat by government that if you do not get in line, you know, the we, we had a, they had a white paper already prepared with like 25 pages of new regulations and taxes that might have been slapped on Silicon Valley if they didn't get in line and come up with new content moderation strategies. And as Nadine says, this is totally an end run around the, for, for the, the First Amendment. It's government exercising power, but sort of by implication and by threat, um, which is very dangerous. And, and that's part of also this, this whole debate. Uh, you know, with with the Elon Musk thing is because this is where we are with speech. It's a privatized landscape, but where's the First Amendment now? Uh, you know, how do we protect it? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Matt, because that's a perfect segue into our next clip. Uh, there have been a lot of free speech advocates, including most recently Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center, arguing within the pages of the Atlantic that we should look to the First Amendment as kind of a guiding document or guiding 45 words, I should say, as to how we should moderate content within Twitter. But the on the media segment, uh, Micah Lohinger and Natalie Wynn talk about what that would look like and draw comparisons with 8chan. Let's listen to it. But I also think that without restrictions against bullying and harassment, for example, the platform becomes unusable very fast. I remember I spoke to Frederick Brennan, who was one of the 
admins of 8chan, who's since kind of mm. had a pretty massive about face. And he told me in 2019, he said, I was kind of aware of the political arguments that image board users make about free speech. You know, that it's all just about the marketplace of ideas and the best ideas fall out. As 8chan's admin, I never saw any good ideas fall out. I just saw each community getting more and more extreme in their rhetoric. 8chan was as good a free speech experiment as we're probably going to get for a long time. Yes. And I'm not sure what Elon Musk's version of this experiment could possibly lead to a better outcome. I do think that looking at 8chan is a pretty good case study. And what happens when you create a, okay, let's just let people say anything. People were posting child pornography to this website on a fairly frequent basis. You know, the only people who end up using this space are kind of socially isolated, angry at the world, white boys in their early 20s or late teens who enjoy the feeling of power that comes with being able to say racist things. And I think that's not a space that most people want to use. So she brought up three categories of unprotected speech uh, there, (laughs) including harassment, child pornography, uh, for example. But let's strongman the argument, or let me reframe their argument to make it uh, a little bit better, which is a First Amendment-guided social media platform. Is that really a platform that anyone would want to use, keeping in mind, for example, that you know, pornography, Nadine, you've wrote a, written a book about this, is protected under the First Amendment. Crush videos uh, are protected under the First Amendment. There's a lot of speech that is protected under the First Amendment that might not make for a uh, very usable, friendly, or civil social media space. So I'm just curious what other people's thoughts are on there. Greg Lukianoff, my boss, his idea is that I understand that, but to the answer some of these hard questions about what a true threat is or what incitement is or the main thing people are concerned about, which is political viewpoint discrimination, the First Amendment has a lot to say about all of that, but it doesn't seem to be inspiring uh, the actual content moderation policies. It's, you know, you say you're making a um, the opposite of straw person argument that they're making, Nico, but I don't think you can escape, you paper over the basic flaw in that clip, which is uh, the assumption that there's something somehow unique about sharing some space for communication that is governed by the First Amendment. We do that every day in the, you know, proverbial Hyde Park corner or Central Park right outside my window or um, in, in, in virtually every single media space. The only one that is not subject to First Amendment standards because of a highly criticized, justly criticized old Supreme Court decisions is the broadcast media, um, ironically enough. And uh, and we seem to survive and thrive with, with that um, uh, vibrant free speech. Now, I would say, as many a- advocates of digital free speech rights uh, argue, that in an ideal world, we would have more user empowerment more user agency, more user freedom of choice, uh, so that it would be easier for us to choose what algorithms are used, what content is driven to us. In fact, we should be able to choose the filtering ourselves and, and take advantage of artificial intelligence to even try to create very individualized content streams. 
I understand that Twitter has been making some pronouncements about experimentation in that direction. Well, you say you bring up the algorithm, and I think Amna, you had talked about this briefly. Is uh, one of the things that Elon Musk wants to do is make it open source, so anyone can see how content is distributed on these platforms, uh, and that kind of speaks to this idea that you can trust in an institution is critical in order for the institution to thrive. And if people see it as being unfair, even if it's just the perception that it's unfair, uh, then it, it it's easy to tear it down. It's not long going to survive as an institution. And I think Facebook's oversight board is one move in that direction and making the algorithm at Twitter open source saying, here, here's how we privilege the content. Where are we engaging in viewpoint discrimination is one way to increase trust and the perception of fairness within the institution. Can, can I just say also that to my mind, it's very, very frustrating the way in which the users are treated as if they're, I mean, it's below children even. It's the idea that ideas are contagious and you put them out there and they're going to infect you instantaneously. There is no understanding that people do have agency and people do filter ideas and people have their own ways of making sense of the world. So just by putting something out there, it's not going to spread like wildfire. And indeed, this has been the case. All the anxiety about disinformation, the studies that have been done show that in fact, the damage is far, far less than what is perceived to be the damage or what the anxiety is about. So to my, this is an elite kind of anxiety about, and as, you know, Jakob Mishangama notes in his excellent book on free speech, this has happened every time we have a new medium of communication. So when the press, printing press first started, it was like, oh my God, ideas are going to spread and people are just going to take them. And then it's just going to like take over. It doesn't happen that way. We need to treat other individuals as human agents who have, you know, who, who are like us. I feel like we've forgotten that other people too are like us in their fundamental humanity and the way they make sense of the world and make meaning. I should say the argument you made right there, uh, and FIRE doesn't take any position on campaign finance laws, but you know when there was a lot of uproar over Citizens United, that was kind of the argument that I always made, right? Is that there's something that stands between the uh, prospective office holder and the office, and it's the voter. And to the extent that corporations, in this case, Citizens United, which made a documentary about Hillary Clinton, or it could be the ACLU or the Sierra Club, uh, you know, is putting money behind a candidate or an idea. Uh, they still got to convince people, right, with that money. And uh, yeah, I think on, on the part of censorship, you know, people who advocate for a more restrictive free speech environment, there's this sense that people are just putty in the hands of other people with ideas they don't like, that they can just be mold, easily molded and they, they, there's no critical thinking that can be brought to bear. Uh, maybe that's true to some certain extent, but if that's the case, then democracy really can't work, can it? Uh, you know, we, we'd be ruled by Plato's oligarchs. There's obviously more we can do and should do in terms of developing critical media literacy and critical reasoning and analytical skills starting at the earliest ages. I would say, you know, even the most ardent advocate of censorship is not going to be able to root out all ideas that are potentially harmful, right? Considering that that's basically all ideas, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, every idea is an incitement. Uh, so what we have to do is to um, make people capable uh, or improve their skills at sorting the wheat from the chaff. 
And I think there, the internet, it presents just absolutely unparalleled resources to make that a, a, a significant reality. And I'm having a passionate reaction to this. Sorry, Matt, I'll pass it to you in a second. But, you know, this smacks of the kind of authoritarian thinking that I know from my part of the world. You know, it's like we know better than you and therefore we will decide what can and can't be shared. That is ridiculous. And to hear that coming from the liberals, from the left, is irksome to me. It really, really gets me because it's completely wrongheaded. I'm not for our listeners. What's your part of the world? Just so they know. Pakistan, Pakistan. Pakistan, yeah. You know, the realm of dictatorships. <laughs> Which, uh, by the way, I made a movie. I made a movie that can't be distributed in Pakistan. Uh, they have strong restrictions on like profanity and things like that. Uh, so, and I think they also have like a review board that has to review movies before they're uh, distributed within the country. There are country, couple countries like that. I think South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. It's just a big giant effing headache uh, in fact for filmmakers but well actually this is a huge problem it's not just like it goes back to the heart of what we're talking about which is content moderation and who gets to call the shots and who decides what's disinformation and misinformation um so it's it's the department of homeland security apparently (laughs) yeah that's why the iraq war was uh founded on such a lot of good information well actually to that point just just quickly before we move on uh, firstly going way back to that clip I thought it was incredibly revealing that their idea of the most successful um, for, uh, First Amendment experiment is HN and not the United States, for instance. Uh, <laughs> like that, like that, that's that's unbelievably revealing to me. And then the other thing is just to tie together something that Amna was saying with something with, uh, that Nico was saying. Um, you know, the, there is this belief that if we put a bad idea out there, it's instantly going to infect everybody. That people are helpless to resist the charm of bad ideas. But somehow the, none of these people uh, think that there's going to be, um, uh, that the, those same people are going to be affected by the phenomenon that Nico is talking about, which is the loss of trust in the institution. In other words, when audiences see that a platform is putting its thumb on the scale and maybe they're making a decision politically in one direction or another, uh, that inspires uh, behavior just as much as being exposed to an idea uh, inspires a reaction. And the the idea that people are going to be convinced by rhetoric, but not be negatively convinced by censorship um, is a total contradiction and, 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 and crazy to me. I, don't, I, I just don't understand why they, they never see that. I also that I uh, somebody uh, uh, the, the the woman I'm sorry I can't remember her name uh, Natalie uh, Wynn right right on that clip she said the only people who want to use Twitter are angry white boys who want to spout racism right uh, but it suddenly popped into my head that one of the most moving persuasive compelling examples of counter speech and dialogue changing somebody's views from hateful discriminatory views toward completely reputing them is Megan Phelps Roper. And that happened on Twitter as she documents in great detail in her memoir, which came out a couple years ago, 
um, unfollowing how I, and she talks about how she had been raised in the Westboro Baptist Church, a group whose motto was our website, www.godhatesbags.org. But they also hated basically Catholics and Jews and members of the military and anybody who wasn't a member of the church. She went on Twitter in order to try to recruit followers to her church in which she had been born and raised. And there she encountered uh, rabbis in Israel who were just started exchanging with her about um, the Bible verses that she, that the Westboro Baptist Church was basing its philosophy on. And through the incredibly patient, uh, ongoing back and forth, got her to question, re-examine, and ultimately reject the ideas she had been raised in. And that's just one of many, many examples. And we could give so many positive examples where the actual, another example is how often when people hear about or see racist or other discriminatory language online, does it galvanize them to do something to be an anti-racist, to you know provide support to those who are attacked, to lobby for laws that will protect against discrimination? So you know, it not only may it not have a negative effect, as as Alma and the rest of you were saying, Alma and the rest of you were saying, but it may actually have a positive impact of pr prompting people to question and reject hateful ideas. Let's go to the next clip. This clip uh, comes from a conversation between Brooke Gladstone, who's the main host of On the Media, and Eli Pariser, who is the head of this organization called Civic Signals. And it makes the argument that despite what the First Amendment says, um, from a normative standpoint, uh, Rules make people more comfortable expressing themselves. Let's hear the argument. In your research, you tease out this idea by imagining what Twitter specifically might look like if it were a physical place. It would be something like a crowded parking lot on a busy shopping day. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to a site even like Reddit, Twitter is sort of uniquely normless. It's very hard to figure out Who's here? What are we doing here? What are the rules of engagement? And so it's not a surprise that the loudest and often most entitled voices get heard the most because there are no rules. You know, communities have to have norms in order to function. One of our advisors is Nathan Matias, who has this fascinating research about Reddit where he looks at a Reddit channel where some folks saw a list of rules about how to engage and some folks didn't. And you might think, oh, this is going to put people off to show them all of the rules. Actually, the opposite was true, that especially for women and folks of color, they were more likely to engage when they saw the rules because there was some sense that, number one, there are rules, and that gives a sense of organization and safety. And number two, I have equal access to them. They're not hidden to me. And therefore, I feel comfortable participating because it's an equal playing field. Um, or more equal playing field. And so how we design these spaces has a lot to do with how people participate in them. I take issue with Eli's idea that Twitter is normless. I think Twitter very much has a set of norms that are easy to gather if you spend any time on it. Uh, kind of motivated by that idea that Twitter is not the real world. You know, there's this world that exists with Twitter that has certain perspectives that are not the real world. Um, 
So I take issue with that. But what about this broader idea, you know, to the extent that you support the First Amendment or free speech, uh, and one of the reasons you do so is the value that it amplifies voices, uh, this research that suggests that rules help to amplify voices. How should we think about that, uh, especially in our online spaces? I think the call for transparency and accountability is absolutely critical. And uh, one of the uh, norms that has been advocated by a group of digital rights advocates for many years under the banner of the Santa Clara principles. Uh, and this is not to impose any specific content moderation obligations on them, but they at least, uh, Nico, you say the Twitter rules are clear. The ones that I've read are. Oh, very no, I said the, nor- the norms of the users oh, the are norms, clear. The, the, norms, the rules are touche, not clear. Touche, I should- <laughs> touche. Touche. Uh, the, the rules have to be um, much more transparent, much more. Again, the United Nations standard is the same as the First Amendment free speech standard, which is that they have to be narrowly tailored. Uh, and that means that they have to be understandable to a person of ordinary intelligence, not only as a matter of protecting free speech, but also as a matter of due process, fundamental fairness. You have to have fair notice of what is going to transgress the rules. Uh, You have to be given an explanation as to why your post is taken down. That that doesn't always happen. You have to be given an opportunity to appeal. I think these are the kinds of viewpoint-neutral regulations that would be consistent with the kind of First Amendment free speech principles that Elon Musk pledged to in in general. Obviously, the devil is in the details. I think the narrow tailoring is actually key over here because we need to accept that along with good ideas, there will be bad ideas out there. There's no foolproof way of doing this because it's fundamentally the good and the bad are fundamentally value-laden and what's good to you may not be good to someone else. So the point, the narrow tailoring needs to be such, not necessarily to control what you deem bad ideas, but for you to be able to put out what you deem good ideas when you want to put them out. And that, I think we often, not we as in, but people who are making these arguments often forget that a rule that constrains the speech that they don't like will soon come to constrain the speech that they do like as well. So the alternative outcome is dangerous here, more dangerous than the outcome of narrowly tailored rules. I would just add that, you know, from a perspective of a a journalist, um, you know, having rules I always thought was empowering um, for us, knowing exactly where the boundaries are, knowing exactly what we can say and what we can't say, um, you know that that that's a positive in reporting because now you know exactly how, how far you can push things when you have to do a report um, and how and where, where you're protected. Uh, additionally, um, the problem with social media is that it's at once heavily regulated and full of rules that we don't really know about. Um, and also ruleless in another, in another way, like, you know, there's people are constantly libeling one another on, on Twitter. Uh, and there's, there's no penalty for that whatsoever. Um, on the other hand, you can be removed from the, from the platform for all sorts of things. And without any notice, uh, there's no transparency, uh, whatsoever. 
Uh, and I, I, so while I would, I would kind of agree with what they're saying, it doesn't really apply to how the internet is run right now because the, the huge problem, and I've been interviewing people who've been removed from internet platforms for years now. Um, they all say the same thing. Like we get no notice, uh, no explanation. And when we are removed, we have no way to appeal to a human being to find out what happened or to fix the situation. Um, that's not having rules. That's, that's something else entirely. That that's, that's a rule-less landscape. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I kind of disagree with their premise. Elon Musk made waves a couple, maybe it was one week ago when he posted that graphic. Joe Rogan had a very helpful episode maybe a year or two ago where he had, I think his name was Tim Poole and then the main legal mind at Twitter on to discuss the argument that Twitter discriminates against viewpoint. And um, this Tim Poole guy said, presented some examples of Twitter's, what he alleged, left-wing bias. And then the general counsel said, you know, we have to take the context into consideration. And then he's like, well, Twitter's interpretation of the context is affected by their left-wing bias. And I would need to, you know, and then I would need to see example of that. Well, here's an example. But, you know, so, you know, it's this kind of circular deal where uh, you have these rules that are re- require kind of like contextual analysis to interpret. You have that in the First Amendment too, right? A lot of the exceptions to the First Amendment are super fact-driven to figure out whether any expression falls into that. But you have guardrails and you explain all the decisions, right? Like it, the people who say that courts don't explain themselves, uh, I guess, have had to go through a 100-page court decision before. Uh, but Twitter doesn't really have to do that. It just kind of creates the contexts and then makes its decision and says what policy you violated, but doesn't put the facts behind it. Facebook's oversight board, to a certain extent, does that. Uh, and then you see the response from Twitter current Twitter employees to Elon Musk's statement, and you're like, maybe Tim Pool was right. <laughs> you know, maybe there is sort of a bias against free speech. Uh, and then you see the Babylon Bee getting deplatformed and the response to the Hunter Biden laptop story and seems to go in one direction. And I think that's the most, you know, the Supreme Court has said that the bedrock principle underlying our free speech jurisprudence is viewpoint neutrality, that the decision maker may not discriminate in favor of or against particular views, ideas, messages. And that to me is the worst of what is happening with the so-called content moderation. I say so-called because that sounds so moderate. It really is blatant viewpoint discrimination. And uh, there's a complete unevenness in how uh, even the comprehensible rules are enforced depending A, on who the speaker is, what B, what the idea is, C, who's putting pressure, who has access to put pressure uh, on the hierarchy at the social media, some people get attention and others don't. It's arbitrary and discriminatory. It's not just what's taken down, too. It's how information is also contextualized, right? We saw people posting about COVID lab leak theory, which is now one of the main theories of the United States government, it so happens, uh, having their post tagged as misinformation. Uh, I'm a big follower of uh, Charles Cook, who's one of the editors over at National Review, I think his writing on free speech is some of the best out there. Uh, but he's also like this uh, Second Amendment guy, and he also loves roller coasters, and he writes a lot about those on his personal website. And I guess his personal website was flagged as extremist content if you wanted to click through to it through Twitter. Uh, I can say pretty definitively, 
Uh, Charles Cook is not an extremist. <laughs> he's a very moderate Mitt Romney, although he's probably didn't, he, maybe not, that's not the way to put it, but like old school, classical liberal conservative. But like all of these con- concepts, extremist, hate speech, disinformation, these are all inherently subjective. They completely depend on the values of whoever has the, the power to enforce. Yeah, just, just to cut in here quickly, I mean, I did a story this week about PayPal last week, uh, in the last couple of weeks, has uh, deactivated the accounts of a whole series of media figures, mostly this time on the left. Uh, they have a history of doing it uh, in the other direction, too. But uh, it included sites like Consortium News and Mint Press, which are basically anti-war uh, sort of in that direction. Um, and th- again, the problem is, isn't so much... Um, that they did it, it's that there's no explanation, uh, and the rubric underneath uh, under which they they make these decisions is well, we're you know we have a rule against uh, false, misleading, um, uh, or inaccurate information. Well, who's making that determination? A payment processing company? I mean, come on, uh, these if you're going to have have people at, at at these platforms making those decisions, uh, especially about news organizations whose primary mission is to challenge diff, you know, sort of entrenched uh, narratives, uh, it's inherently going to be, uh, you know, an uneven, unfair exercise. And it's always going to be subjective, as Nadine puts it. And I, that that's a big problem for me. Nico, you know, I just, there's a theme, which may be obvious, but I think it's worth stating that, you know, the on the media segment completely focused on the downsides of free speech. And and they didn't even treat them as potential downsides. Just this is the only thing that happens with free speech is all these awful things, bullying and harassment and child pornography and physical violence and people cutting off their their limbs and and so forth. Um, We're talking about, uh, even if you assume for the sake of argument that all of those asserted harms are present. And we've, I think, made a very strong case that you're only assuming that for the sake of argument. It's not true under the law. But even if we made that far-fetched assumption, it still would not justify rejecting Musk's commitment to free speech because we're talking about, well, what's the alternative? If free speech is not the standard, in fact, if we just stick with what Twitter is already doing, that's even worse in many ways, even more dangerous and more harmful than all of the positive harms from the free speech approach. So I don't think we have time to go to the rest of the clips. You know, I'd encourage our listeners to listen to it themselves. Ghost in the Machine, I believe it's their April 29th episode. But if if you all have two more minutes, I'd like to ask two more questions. Uh, I see some noddings of the heads. Uh, Beware. You don't know what the questions are yet. <laughs> but um, Matt, you were talking about PayPal, right? Uh, it's payment processing system. There have been efforts as well to get other payment processing systems, namely credit card companies, from also uh, stopping to service certain organizations. You see this in the, uh, in the um, gun manufacturing context, for example. That's one. Adult content. Adult content as well. Uh, and Nadine, you spoke to this earlier. What do we make of this idea that many people have that some of the piping of our modern internet infrastructure, ISPs, you know, denial of service 
systems that prevent denial service attacks like Cloudflare. You remember after the uh, after the Charlottesville events, Cloudflare stopped servicing Stormfront. Um, PayPal is one. Credit card companies. Um, people say, well, these social media companies are common carriers, kind of like AT and T. I don't quite see the same parallel because they do make editorial decisions to the extent you have, you know, any sort of algorithmic uh, content moderation. Maybe that's good or bad. Um, but some of the piping, like, can you get on the internet? Can you be prevented from? Uh, can you prevent hackers from accessing your system? Can I send a payment to someone for legal services? Uh, those are coming under attack now too, and to the extent that those are undermined by any sort of ideological attacks uh, is quite chilling and perhaps more chilling than what we're seeing on the social media front. So I'd like to get your guys' perspective as to whether we should start to actually seriously consider the idea that some of these companies should be considered common carriers, just like our gas company, our water company, and our phone companies. I think that's a very powerful argument, uh, which interestingly enough has been made by experts across the ideological spectrum, including even staunch libertarians, interestingly enough. Uh, the deeper you go down into the architecture, the more compelling the argument becomes because uh, the less analogous they are to exercising editorial judgment and the more analogous they are to providing some critical infrastructure that is absolutely necessary to meaningfully function in the contemporary world. Uh, of course, again, the devil is in the details exactly what regulations would be enforced, but I think the basic concept, which goes back to the common law, uh, when you have critical infrastructure, is uh, that there would be a basic obligation to fairly and non-discriminatorily treat everybody. And I like that because that to me is a manifestation of the viewpoint neutrality principle. You know, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, you should have access to these critically essential um, facilities for communicating. I, you know, I fear that those arguments aren't going to get anywhere. We live in the uh, age of the politics of the expedience of expediency. It's like let's increasingly on every side of the political spectrum, or I should guess a spectrum. It goes two directions. I guess it could go more than that. But uh, it people there's this like burn it down mentality. If it's good for my, the for my side, then let's pack the court. If it's good for my side, then you know, let's, let's and the filibuster. Yeah. And the filibuster. If it's good for my side, let's leak this, this Supreme court draft opinion. Um, I just don't see, I, I interviewed Norman Siegel who used to run the uh, New York civil liberties union. And he, uh, he said, if I could have a tattoo on my body, it would go straight across my chest and it would say neutral principles, but I don't see a party for neutral principles anymore. That's, those are considered dangerous ideas on many campuses. Neut neutral is a, is a, is hate speech. Uh, I, I have no doubt about it on, in the eyes of many now. Just quickly from from uh, from my perspective, I mean, I, I jumped from Rolling Stone to Substack. Uh, so I went from a kind of a traditional corporate media organization to an independent media organization, which is booming and doing great business. And I have a bit bigger audience than I've ever had uh, before in my life. Um, it's been extraordinarily successful for lots of people. Um, but decisions like what happened with PayPal are incredibly chilling for independent journalists because, um, you know, it's one thing to worry about having an article 
deleted from the internet. It's another thing to have your whole business shut down. Uh, and if that, if the threat of that is there, um, I, I know people who are already kind of retreating from where they think the line might be, uh, because, be, because that, that is just devastating. There's nowhere else to go, right? If you, if you're going to get cut off by, you know, MasterCard, Visa, or, you know, a company like that, um, there's no, there's really no recovering from that financially for, for a lot of these folks. So I think that stuff is, is very dangerous. And that's a place where the first amendment is, is, um, is really, uh, really in danger. And you could have a platform like Substack, which is welcoming of a diverse set of views. And I, I should say, and I forget her name, but she's like the communications director for Substack. I'd love to have her on the podcast, but she's like a full throated defender of Substack's approach to letting its writers kind of have the freedom to write. Uh, but even Substack needs to have a way to pay its writers, right? Uh, well, right. Exactly. It, the Substack was designed specifically to avoid censorship. It was designed so that the distribution system bypasses these platforms, right? It's You, you get your content directly by mail, but you still got to find a way to pay, to get paid. And, you know, the those payment companies um, are a weak point for speech. And people are thinking about this now. You know, what was maybe a fantasy for authoritarian thinkers decades ago, this is a reality now. There are people who are actively looking for ways to get into the middle of speech they don't like. And, you know, as we see with the PayPal thing, um, or the GoFundMe episode with the Canadian truckers also happened with some of these independent media sites. Um, you know, they're, they're coming after, uh, speech in the same way that they've done it previously with things like adult entertainment and, uh, and guns, as you mentioned. The NRA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this is, uh, you know, this it's, I think this is stuff is really scary. Uh, it's way, it's way scarier even than, than the, than the content moderation policies of Facebook or Twitter. I do need to ask uh, as our final question here, because this is, I think the thing that's motivating a lot of people's opposition to Elon Musk, which is the Trump ban. Uh, it's a third rail in a certain sense. And I see Avna kind of exhaling there. Listen, I just want to be very frank, right? Like I'm not a fan of Trump's, but we need to think if we're concerned about the effects in society and we think about what's going to happen when you ban people, you need to also recognize that these voices go underground. They go underground, there are other platforms they go to where they're less policed, you're less aware of them. And then you're suddenly surprised when someone like Trump gets elected. You're like, oh, I had no idea people were thinking this. Well, because you completely created a wall so that you couldn't hear them. And now here we are. So to my mind, you know, no fan of Trump's, but Let's think, if we're going to think about the consequences for our society, it's the consequences aren't within these like walled, tiny silos. The consequences are all over. So the argument is the same as the argument for, you know, Nadine will attest, you know, for, for Nazis being able to march in Skokie. It's like, if you're not going to let them do that, then we know it goes underground and then it comes out worse. So it's simple in my mind. It's not a complicated question. And this wasn't to you, Nico. I mean, I was just saying I was getting frustrated with the question in the wider public sphere about Trump. And Yeah. Well, it also speaks to the question we discussed earlier about uh, fairness and trust in the institutions, right? You know, to the extent you have 50% of the electorate, more or less, that supports Trump um, uh, banning him from one of the greatest social media platforms, regardless of whether you think he should be banned because he met the incitement standard or whatnot uh, in his January 6th speech, 
that, that which was enforced as with all the so-called standards enforced in a very inconsistent way. But one thing I, one point I want to make about Trump completely agreeing with, with Amna, uh, but adding that people have to remember that freedom of speech includes not only the right of the speaker, but the right of the audience members. You know, Amna and I want to hear what these important politicians have to say. At that point, he was still the duly elected president of the United States and commander in chief. I wanted to hear what his messages were. And by the way, in terms of consequences, who knows? A number of political analysts um, surmised that part of the reason Trump was defeated last time around was precisely because um, those traditionally Republican suburban voters heard what he said on Twitter and Facebook and didn't like it. So they decided to vote against him. So again, you know, it shows the complexity of human reactions uh, going back to a point Amna made earlier, that we can't just have this simplistic, oh, you hear Trump, you're going to immediately become an acolyte and support and imitate everything that he does. One final point, when Trump got deplatformed, uh, my former ACLU colleagues issued a statement that I thought was really powerful. They said, you know, Trump will have alternative platforms and outlets, but we're really concerned about the people we represent, you know, the marginalized, discriminated, voiceless people who really are especially dependent on these social media platforms. And I want to come back to a point I made right near the beginning that with all of the overemphasis on the negative stuff that's happening online, think of all of the positive movements. If you are the most ardent social justice champion, your movements got off the ground because of Twitter and hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag Me Too and others. These were movements that had struggled for years didn't gain any traction, and Twitter finally gave a voice to the non-Donald Trumps of the world. I would just add, I had the same reaction to uh, the removal of Trump that Bernie Sanders did, which is, you know, if there's somebody who can turn off the president, a sitting president of the United States, uh, who are those people? And aren't they really running the country? I mean, that that, that was kind of a scary moment. And, I, and, and again, it... Uh, I think for for a lot of people, the shock of that was was more powerful than than any statement that Trump could make. Um, so, I, I, to me, it's dangerous to to even go there. And and uh, yeah, Bernie Sanders is funny on free speech issues because he always kind of has he's, he has kind of like this old school liberal mentality, where you know you see modern progressives making certain arguments calling for more censorship and. And we saw this in the campus context. He heard these arguments. He's like, "What are? We, why would we ban them? Are we? What are we afraid of? Their ideas?" And it's just Your like ideas? he just he just like doesn't understand the argument because he's like used to the 1960s and 70s like kind of free speech culture, uh, which I always find kind of funny. And I, it's true. Like, what are you, are you afraid of? You can't win in the in the battle of ideas. But I will say this, just kind of as a small story before we sign off. Nadine, your point about the rights of the listener is super, super important. I grew up uh, and came up through high school during the time where like the four horsemen were popular, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, um, and uh, why am I forgetting the fourth one uh, over there in, in Europe? Um, Richard Dawkins, excuse me. And one of, one of the 
shaping and and, and I kind of became like an anti-theist in their movement and my opinions have changed over time because because you're human you're human you changed your mind yeah uh, <laughs> the intellectual journey doesn't end when you're 22 <laughs> years old surprise surprise but uh there was this awesome documentary uh but about Christopher Hitchens and this evangelical pastor from Idaho Douglas Wilson who's like very evangelical opposed to everything I believe but they both have a commanding knowledge of scripture. And so they made this documentary where they went on a road show debating scripture. Uh, and at Indiana university where I went to college, Douglas Wilson was coming to speak. This is you know, around the time that Hitch, uh, passed away. And I was so excited for the opportunity because I was going to get to do what Christopher Hitchens did. I was going to get to interrogate Douglas Wilson. And it was my first ever experience in person with a mob shout shouting down a speaker. Uh, Douglas Wilson didn't really get to speak. I didn't get to ask him any of my questions and he might've, you know, so it's, it's, it's like that people, but people, when they were talking about the debate, were talking about his right to speak. They weren't talking about my right to hear someone speak who I had heard debate one of my heroes and I got to like be in his, in the position of one of my heroes, you know, Christopher Hitchens, uh, he and and Douglas Wilson had this great line. You know, he says, "I'm always I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right." And you know, mob censors I think have this sense of their infallibility that they are always right, and then therefore they can determine for everyone else what is true and false uh, at the point of censorship. So uh, we have to leave it there. Can I say one thing that, ahead, that actually came up, and I think um, is worth noting is. You know, uh, Nadine brought it up, which is that there is this idea that value neutral, like uh, content neutrality is somehow seen as a bad thing. It's happening a lot on campuses and it's seen as a product of white supremacy as is free speech. It's like the the weapon of the people who want to oppress. I just want to contest that and say for those people who see this as specifically white in Western concepts, there is a long, long history of the appreciation of these values across the world in many, many societies. So those who claim that these are white supremacist values are coming from a deeply ahistorical point of view. They need to go back and read some serious history and recognize that there are some universals that are worth upholding. And even, even people of color and BIPOC people have historically seen the value of those things. I would say, especially, not even, yes. especially. You know, Frederick Douglass said it best, and he was somebody who very strongly advocated for uh, the right to receive ideas. Um, he said slavery could not survive free speech. Five years of its exercise would banish every auction block and break every chain in the South. Yeah. The, I don't know, you're talking about these being universal values. I think the argument is, you know, that these are white supremacist ideas is also a very American-centric viewpoint that kind of erases the rest of the world where these ideas are essential uh, to secure the rights that we in America might have right now, but elsewhere in the world, they don't. So I, I appreciate you guys staying on 15 minutes past the hour. Got to wrap it up there. Uh, hope to do it again soon. Well, actually, I don't. <laughs> Because that would mean on the media did another one of their one of their episodes where they make arguments for censorship under orchestral music, uh, and I don't really want that. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nico. Thank you all so much. Great seeing you. Thank you. 
Take care, Amna. <laughs> that was Matt Taibbi, Nadine Strawson, and Amna Khalid responding to an April 29th radio segment from WNYC's On the Medias. The segment was called Ghost in the Machine, and it will be linked in the show notes for anyone who has an interest in listening to that full episode. I should also mention that that documentary that I referred to between Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson is called Collision. Highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in kind of debates over uh, scripture. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak at twitter.com slash free speech talk. We also now have an Instagram account, also at the free speech talk handle. Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast, although we're not reaching you there organically for reasons we discussed earlier in the episode. We take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org, and you can watch this episode on YouTube at our new uh, So To Speak channel. Uh, it's no longer hosted on the Fire channel. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.